So over this summer series, we are looking at these beautiful, wonderful statements of Jesus. And uh, this morning, we get to join Jesus again on the hillside, looking over the Sea of Galilee, surrounded, if you can imagine it, by thousands and thousands of people hanging on every word that Jesus speaks. You've got this inner core of Jesus' disciples, those who have given everything to stand up, leave everything behind, and follow him, all the way through to those who are the onlookers, those who are curious, skeptics, and just searching for truth. And I don't know, as you come to church this morning, whether you would put yourself in one of those camps or somewhere in the middle, but the good news is, is these words of Jesus are as full of life as for us as they ever were for that first audience. And these statements, these beatitudes, they are like the, the, the inauguration of a new kingdom. They speak of an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom which launches in Jesus, which is beautiful, which is powerful, which is also, as we've discovered these last weeks, just radically different from anything that the world had ever seen then, and maybe even than what we often see today. And those first century Jews, those first century people, as they huddled around Jesus, they were desperate, waiting, looking for change, looking for something that would be better than this idea of kind of a military solution or a political solution. And here comes Jesus with this speech, with this inauguration of something new. And Dallas Willard describes these beatitudes, these statements as this, repent, turn, for the kingdom has now come near enough for you to live in it. Here are the house rules. Here are the house rules. Like, unlike spiritual gifts or what number you are on the Enneagram, these are not you get one and I get another one, or you get a few and I get a few. But these, these are the rules. This is like the new to vintage lunch of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, this is how it works. This is how you live. These are the very people that the kingdom of God is designed and intended for. And so we get to like the sixth beatitude. Blessed are you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? And obviously there's two words we're going to have to contend with. One is pure and the other one is clearly heart. But I want to do a little bit of interaction to start with to make sure you're all still here. When you think of the word purity, and I'm not looking for the theologically correct answer, just wanting you to be honest, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Anyone brave enough to shout something out? Water. Okay, sorry, water. Sorry. I pronounced it wrong. So sorry. Anyone else? Oh, hold on, two different ones, let's go there. Clean, cleansed, spotless, innocent, anything else? Oh, I didn't hear that one. Purity culture, okay, thank you. There's a really honest person down the middle, okay. We did this as a staff team on Tuesday, and over and over and we came back to this idea of some sort of middle school, high school youth teaching which was all around this idea of sexual purity. It was all around the idea that if you uh, had sex before you were married, then, then you would lose your purity. And there was this kind of idea that once you lost your virginity, you were like a, a piece of tape that had lost its stickiness or this kind of used tissue. 
there's a sort of idea of, of something that we certainly, if you go back through the centuries, you get to see this particularly aimed at women, this idea of, of this sexual purity that is very specific. It's very entwined with one, one thing. And even though the Bible never quite puts those things, two things together in the same way. And because of that, and I know if we're really honest, a lot of us grew up with that in our middle school, high school youth groups. And outside the world too, there is this kind of hatred of the word purity. As I asked people this week, like, what do you think of purity? People were like, I, don't, I really do not like that idea at all anymore. I, um, I read the one, this wonderful article in the BBC. I mean, it's going to be wonderful it was in the BBC. That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, but it was comparing and contrasting views of sex between the French, who the BBC described as being wonderfully liberated and free, and the Christian Americans who were oppressive, repressive, uh, who were basically prudish and puritanical and condemning. There's this kind of idea that purity, if that's what purity is, if that's all that purity is, then it's not really something we would ever want. And maybe, you know, as you come to church this morning, that idea of purity has left its mark in, in your life. Maybe as you come into church, there's a sense of guilt or there's a sense of shame or some sort of feeling that you aren't good enough or that you've been condemned or that God hates people or he hates sex or he hates everything. But I don't think that's quite what Jesus meant. Certainly wasn't all that Jesus meant when he spoke about the pure in heart. And the clue, I think, to what Jesus is really speaking about is in the word heart. Because when we realize Jesus is talking about the heart, we realize he isn't actually primarily talking about the outside shiny behavior of how we're supposed to behave primarily. He's actually talking about something that's very deep, very deep within us. Now, when we think of the heart, maybe you think of your emotions or you think of your feelings, you think about what's very private. Well, in the early church, in the first century Jews, as Kenneth Bailey in Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes says, that while modern Western culture limits the word heart to feelings, the heart in the Hebrew mind included the entire interior life of a person, including the feelings, the mind, and the will. They were all part of the heart. That in Jesus' time, your heart was everything that was internal to you. It was everything that you were. It was all that you thought, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your will, working from the very deepest place within you out as you behave in the world. And so if that's the kind of place that purity works from the inside toward the outside, not just the shiny veneer of outside that might affect the inside, then what might be a better definition for purity of heart? Well, there's a guy called Soren Kierkegaard. He's a very strange man, but a very brilliant theologian. And he says this, that purity of heart is this, the pure of heart is to will one thing, to will one thing, to have no mixed emotions, to have an undivided heart. And in a sense of Christianity, it is toward God and toward his goodness, to return to God the love that he first showed to us. It's to choose him over everything, over anyone. It's to be single-minded, but it's also to be single-hearted toward the creator. It's to gaze on him in worship. It's to see his beauty. It's to see his goodness, to see how transformation, his power and his spirit is working. And then tell that to allow that truth to focus 
fix our hearts like a laser on the one thing, which is God and who he is. The message translation says of this verse, you are blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. It's like a vision of purity, which I love because it's fierce. It's potent. It brings transformation. And I feel like in the cry of our generation, which seems to be toward the word authenticity, you hear that word every single day, like this is the kind of thing that we're talking about, a purity toward the one thing. We realize that, you know, in our culture, the airbrushed, the fake, the online persona, the spun, like that's not going to work anymore. It's just not enough. And this is a something more beautiful. And we know that, just like the first century Jews did. Now, they lived in a Roman world which on one side looked beautiful. I mean, there was the Roman world full of power, full of education and science and achievement and technology. It was like the pinnacle of human civilization. And yet on the other side, if you scratched the surface, you would find greed and power and tyranny and terror and genocide. If people wanted something better. And when Jesus comes, he speaks of the better, not of empire, but he speaks of the human heart. He talks of healing and transformation, but he talks about it starting deep within a person and changing the world around. And those first disciples on that hillside, they glimpsed it, like they saw it. They experienced the healings. They saw the transformation. They saw that the blind could see and the dead could be raised. They heard the truth of it and they got up and they literally left everything behind. The businesses, the friends, the homes to follow Jesus. Why? Because they wanted more. Because they wanted the real thing and the fake wasn't going to do it for them anymore. But Jesus had captured the very most personal parts of who they were and they could never be the same again. But I wonder, church, and this is the kind of challenging question we get to, does Jesus have our hearts? Does Jesus have my heart? Does Jesus have your heart in that way? Because that sounds hard, doesn't it? I mean, it's all very well to say like, yeah, God, I'm going to give you like my best on a Sunday morning. I'm going to be my best in my community group or I'm going to give you my best in my, you know, 10% of my tithing or whatever it's going to be. But like the idea that God could have everything, that God could be in charge of all that we are, that our whole gaze could be fixed on him. I mean, that sounds like that's a high bar when we have to deal with family and work and jobs and all the other pressures that we, we think about when we're told all the time that it's supposed to be about us, how can it possibly be about him? How could you, how can we cultivate that purer heart? Because if you're like me, I, I would love to know more of God's goodness. I'd love to see more of his beauty. I would love to see more of his transforming power in people's lives. So how do we cultivate the pure heart? Well, the first thing I think we have to always do is we have to recognize the pitfalls along the way that Jesus was so keen to deal with. The things that we fall in when we're trying to get to a pure heart, but actually we end up in the wrong place. The first one is this, when we will the right thing, but we will it for the wrong reasons. Ever done that? If you want to give it a name, you might say it's moralism. And Jesus had a lot to say about moralism in the Bible. 
You see, we often think that the opposite of purity is impurity. But actually, for Jesus, the opposite of purity wasn't impurity. It was hypocrisy. It was being duplicitous. It was having two different things going on. You see, in the Old Testament of the Bible, there were all these rules. And they were rules supposed to keep people in check and keep them focused on God, but they were rules about how you ate, about how you lived, about cleanliness and health, about how you worshipped. But through the Old Testament, like, people just kind of got, like, took them further and further out of context until you get to like, when Jesus arrives on earth, you've got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have basically taken all of these rules and they've added like another 3,000 million rules on top of them. And then they've created this elite standard of perfection of behavior in their mind. And the idea was that if you could get this high, then maybe you would be right with God. But yet in reality, what Jesus realizes is that they'd completely missed the point. Because on the outside, it looked kind of good, but in the inside, they were broken. And so when Jesus comes to the earth, what he does is he goes and breaks all their rules. He eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. He touches unclean people. He heals on the Sabbath. Like not because he's just trying to be rebellious, but because he's trying to prove a point. That the purity of heart doesn't start with some shiny version of the outside. It starts on the inside. It's not cleaning up your outward life, but leaving the inside a complete mess. It's not behavior modification, not some facade of spirituality. As Jesus says, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's a real challenge, right? Or at least to me. How easy is it for me to do things like, oh yeah, man, I'm going to show up to the church service or my community group because, well, I, I will want to be seen to be there. Because I want to get something back from it. Because, you know, it's about me. And because, you know, it's not worship. Or, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to be really generous. I'm going to be the first person to buy all the coffees and buy the lunches when I take my friends out. But if you looked at my bank account, if you looked at my credit card statement, you wouldn't see much about worshiping God. Oh, man, I'm going to read the Bible every single day because I think that that's the way that you're supposed to do it because that's what they told me And when I was growing up. And they told me in, in, when I went to community group and church that I had to read the Bible for 10 minutes a day. So I'm going to read the Bible for 10 minutes a day. But I'm just kind of checking a box because somebody told me that that's what you're supposed to do. Like that on the outside, it kind of looks right. But if we're honest inside, it's totally different motivation. And we can take that duplicity to every part of, of our life. Man, yeah, I'm going to abstain from sex because that's what they told me in church, but I'm going to engage in vivid fantasies. I'm going to praise people outwardly, but inwardly I hate those people and I don't want to see them again. I'm going to tell God and tell everyone that I'm all in for God and I'm going to do anything, but inwardly like I have a very clear set of boundaries about the bit that God can have and the things that he can't touch. Jesus had a lot to say to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you in Matthew 23, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're just full of hypocrisy and wickedness. If you have ever been hurt by hypocrisy, in the church or outside, then don't worry, Jesus hates it too. Jesus thinks authenticity is good. It's not just us. So we can will the right things, but we can will them for the wrong reasons. The second thing we can do is we can often deny that actually anything is really going on inside us at all. 
That's called being British, if you're wondering. Or, or at least repression might be a more generic term for it. It's to push stuff down, right? It's to deny that we have a problem at all. It's to deny that there's anything bad going on. It's to refuse that we will anything that's bad, that we will anything that's wrong. And we keep things deep in the dark. You know, and sometimes we, we hear these horrendous stories, don't we, where suddenly, almost out of nowhere, you hear a story of a suicide of a really amazing person, or you hear about an ad adultery or something just really going wrong, and you think, how could that thing have actually happened overnight? That, think that shouldn't be possible. And of course, the answer is, well, it didn't happen overnight, but it did happen in the dark. See, this idea is that we just push stuff so far down inside us that if we can just push it far enough away from what we're thinking about, then it can't hurt us and it can't touch us. But as Ephesians 5 says, you were once in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed to the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. You know, we assume that it's better to stuff things down so that they don't ever get seen by anyone, when actually Jesus' invitation is to bring the things of darkness into the light so they can be transformed. You know, sometimes people will come and see me, and, and they're like, Ben, I just really need to tell you some things. And... You know, people, I can often you see people shaking because they're so nervous about, they've never told anyone what they're about to say. And as they start to speak, there's always this kind of inward smile that I have because the first thing is I'm like, this is, this is a brilliant move towards healing. If you want to get healed, this is a great place to start. But there's also another part of me because as people share what their deepest, darkest problems are, the other part of me is going, you're not the only one. <laughs> Probably, probably most of us are actually struggling with something similar to what you're struggling with. It just feels so much bigger. It feels so much darker when we keep stuff deep inside and we try and put on a show and we keep a facade of smile and beauty when inside things are really broken. So we can deny, repress, anything's going on. And then the third thing is that, and this is maybe the one that I find the hardest, is that we can will the good thing the God thing, the right thing, but we will it amongst many different things. You never found yourself saying something like this, man, God, I'm all in for you. Like, I'm in for worship. I want to see everything you've got. I've got, I want your miracles. I want your salvation. I want your power to see things happen. I want to see transformation of my community. But honestly, I kind of also want comfort. And I kind of want safety, and I want to have a nice vacation this year, and I want my kids to go to a really good school, and I want to live in a really good neighborhood, and I want my relationships to work out like some sort of like Hallmark Christmas movie, because that's the way to be happy. And we're kind of on one hand saying, God, you can have everything, but we're really actually saying you can have everything of about 1%, because the rest is mine. And it's not that those things are necessarily bad, by the way, of course they're not but it's just that they war with the very idea of who God is because they capture our heart, they capture our eyesight, they take all that we are away from worship. And I show you this story, um, not for any degree of congratulations, it definitely doesn't deserve it. This is like public confession. You see this thing on the screen? 1997 Jaguar XK8, four liter British racing green. 
Last year, I saw it on the internet, and my heart just, it broke inside me. Because I had this vision of like late on a day off, like a Friday afternoon, Laura and I driving down the PCH with the wind in her hair. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, this is like the perfect blend of American dreams and British sports cars. Like, and it was cheap, right? I mean, it wasn't expensive. I'm telling you, it was a bargain. And I was like, well, I thought, not only could we buy this, I could even probably figure out a way to maybe even make a few pennies out of it. Maybe we could, we don't, we wouldn't cost us lots of money and I could rationalize it in my head. So I kind of thought about how I was going to do it and I thought, I know how to do all this kind of stuff. So I, I, I phoned the guy and I said, I want to buy it. And I got it inspected and everything seemed really right. I mean, I should be clear, I had absolutely no reason to buy it. It had no practical purpose in my life. We're not short of cars. If you ever come to our house, there are cars. Like, but, but I was like, I, this could be amazing. And so I, I bought it. And it came down from this collector in Portland on a truck and it arrived on my driveway the first day on my day off. And I went out of the house and there it was. Look at it just like that. And my heart was like, this is amazing. And I sat in it for the first time. And every warning light, every error message, every malfunction lit up on the dash at once. <laughs> like everything. It was like a Christmas tree inside it. It was so full of color. And so I took it to the Jaguar like specialist at West Covina and I said, hey man, you've got to help me out. Something's not right with this car. And he phoned me up a few days later and he's like, no, it's not true that something's not right with the car. Everything, everything is not right with that car. I, I kid you not, for the next eight months, I poured my heart into trying to fix this thing. I sourced parts from the other side of the world. I, I went down to the, the workshop all the time to try and see if this, we could find ways to make things cheaper and better. And after eight months, and I mean like thousands of dollars later and countless hours, the mechanic phoned me and he said, well, the good news is you can drive it. The bad news is it is still not safe and it probably never will be. And so there I was, like, well, this is probably like a couple of months ago, thinking, well, what do I do now? Do I, do I continue to invest like thousands more dollars that we don't have to try and make this beautiful thing right? Or do I try and sell it? And I can't really sell it because if I sell it, I'm going to be giving somebody else a complete lemon, which will give them a headache for the rest of their lives. And I was just like caught in this constant thing, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, what am I supposed to do about this car? Is it actually ruining everything? And as I prayed one day in like real desperation, I just felt the Lord say this to me then just give it away. Just give it away. And I was like, oh no, Lord, what you really mean is, you mean, you know, you know you're going to heal the car and it's going to make thousands of dollars. And he was like, like, no, just give the car away. And I was like, oh, what you mean is like take the car to pieces and sell all the beautiful pieces separately on eBay, because that would work. And he went like, no, just, sell the, just give the car away. And so I went to say, say, Laura, look, I just really need to be honest with you. We've got a problem, and I, I just think we need to give this thing away. And she, because she's so much more faithful and godly than I am, she said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's just give the car away. And, and we phoned up this, this nonprofit that works with children, and they auction these things off and make a few dollars, and then they you know, fund projects all around the world working with children. And this transporter took this car away on a truck. And... On one hand, it left this huge gaping hole in our bank, but on the other hand, there was this incredible sense of freedom. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in any way to impress you because it's not impressive. It, I'm, I'm saying that because for me, that car had become something that it should have never become. 
It had grabbed hold of my heart. It had grabbed hold of my mind. It had grabbed hold of my wallet. It had grabbed hold of all that I was and was taking the very best of me away from the very one thing that I'm called to live my life in. And I'm not saying that to condemn all of you who have nice cars. I don't believe that, and you know I don't believe that. I'm not saying that to say that for us we should just like throw away everything and walk out on the streets and be homeless and live in you know, really bad areas or anything like that. But, but what I realized is that there is a way that a good thing can become a God thing. And when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's what the Bible calls idolatry, basically. And the Bible's full of it. Like, you know, in the Old Testament, there's all these times where like, these, it seems like what people are doing is that they're replacing God for something else. But actually, that's not what's going on. They're not actually replacing God for something else. What they're doing is saying, well, we want you, God, but we want you and something else. Oh, God, we believe you're really powerful, but it would really help us if we had a big golden calf because everyone else has got one of those two to worship. Oh, we really believe that you're in charge, God, but we really need a king because if we had a king like everybody else, it would be better. So easy, isn't it? But I think it also not just cuts to what you do. It cuts to how you do it, and it cuts to why you do the things that you do. You know, I was wondering this week, like, what would it mean if I actually had a mindset which was a missionary mindset? What if I actually thought about the things that God had given me with this one question? How can this serve the kingdom of God? How can my house or my apartment How could that be used in a way that would see God's kingdom come in my street? How could my car be used in such a way where God's kingdom would come through it, or my clothes, or my money, or or my time, or anything? What if everything was pointed towards God for his glory and for his kingdom to come? I spoke to a young guy this week. He's a, a missionary in another part of the world. And um, he was telling me how he's fallen in love. And I was like, oh, so nice. He was telling me about this, this lovely young lady he'd met and how he hopes to marry her. But he said this thing which completely blew me away because after telling me how beautiful she was and how wonderful, he then said, in my community, in order for me to be a missionary to families, actually as a single young man in my 20s, I can't do it because there's loads of families that I can't go and see because it's not appropriate for me to go and minister as a young man on my own in those settings. He said, I've just been desperately praying that the Lord would bring a co-laborer to me so that together we could minister the good news of Jesus in this area. I thought, oh, yeah, you should get married. (laughs) That's a great reason you should get married. You know, what might it look like to say of our careers, you know, I will work in an area where I can bring the good news of Jesus. Or I I will seek out a big paycheck, but I will do it so that it gives me an opportunity to fund kingdom projects all over the place. You see, I don't think Jesus is really even wanting to be the top of the list. He wants to be at the center of the list, at the center of every desire in order that we could leverage them to bring his kingdom to bear. Colossians 3 Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord that you're serving. And 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
It's not just what you do. It's why and how you do what you do. So I go back to my question. How could we cultivate this? Maybe you don't, this morning you're like, I don't even want any of that. That doesn't sound good to me. But maybe you are here thinking, like, I, I, would, love to, I would even love to want to want that. I would want to want to will the one thing, if that makes any sense. So here's four things that might help you quickly. Number one, be a one person. In the world that we live that says you can be anything you want, any way you want, you can be different online and in person and this group of people and that group of people that you can put on any facade that you want, I think Jesus' invitation to us is to be one whole person. Now, they did this um, research at Duke University to look at the people who've been causing uh, like hate crimes, particularly the very, very far ends of the political spaces online. And they went out to try and figure out who these kinds of people were. And they thought that they were going to find very violent, very aggressive people with criminal records, that kind of thing. But the people that they actually found were very quiet, very hurt, very broken, very rejected people who had a complete facade of normality in their life. That they had jobs like nurses and cleaners and teachers. But when they got home behind a computer, in front of a computer screen, they realized if they let all their deepest darkness out, that actually they could build a following and it would give them some sense of worth and love. Be one person. Don't put on facades. Refuse to pretend. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually come to church and say, and someone says, how are you doing? And we would actually not answer fine. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could be really truthful and say we're really struggling and we're hurting because there's some darkness we're battling? So number one, it'd be one person. Number two, ache to encounter God. You see, the promise of the beatitude says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Who gets to see God? The pure in heart see God. There's something about peeling back the layers of the facade, taking off the fake masks, the makeup, all the things that we hide behind, not physically, but metaphorically, that allows us to be who we are called to be. Because the promise is, is that where we set our focus, if we come as we are, it will determine the very direction of, of who we are. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Because I think that's, that's why worship is so important, church we can occasionally be fooled into thinking that when we come to gather, you know, singing is that nice thing we do in order to be, arrive and have our coffee, in order to get to the main thing, which is the Bible. When actually I think worship, whether it's in art, or whether it's in music, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in silence, is incredibly important. It's who we were created to be because as we come into the place of worship, we're not just singing songs about a God, we're actually asking God to open up heaven, to open up our eyes, to open up truth, so we would actually realize more of who he is. And as we realize more of who he is, then our hearts start to be transformed into his likeness. Like worship is not an optional extra for people who like singing. Worship is this profoundly important encounter because it's as we encounter the Lord, our lives are changed. 2 Corinthians, and we who with unveiled faces 
unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. You can't change your hearts, but God can change your hearts. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Not because you earned it, but because it's a gift of encounter when we worship. Thirdly, free, flee from sin. Flee from sin. Now this is getting a little close, I realize, to where we started at the beginning of the talk, but there is a distinction. 2 Timothy 2.22, all the twos. Flee for the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee, flee from sin, flee from it. Don't flirt with it, don't invite it home, don't go near its edges. Why? As Proverbs tells us, guard your heart for everything flows from it. We ask the question, how far can I go before it becomes sin? How close can I get before we cross over the line? Yet, the Apostle Paul would have answered that question very differently. He would have never asked the question, how close? He would have always answered the question, how far and how quickly can I get away from it? Because ultimately, it is true that wherever we position our bodies, we're positioning our heart. And wherever we want our lives to go, we also need to position our bodies in that direction. If you want to be faithful to your spouse, if you want to love them really well, then don't go to any physical environment which could put you in a place of temptation to do anything other than to love them and be faithful to them. You want to be celibate with your boyfriend and girlfriend until you get married? Well, then don't do things which are clearly going to put you in a place of great temptation. You want to be pure and good with your words? Well, then clearly don't go to places where you are going to be tempted to gossip and slander and speak badly about people. You want to be free of porn or alcohol or binge eating or whatever it might be. Then focus your eyes towards the Lord and get your bodies out of the place of temptation. Don't fuel greed and lust and sin. Don't feed it. And at the same time, be honest about who you are. We might say, well, none of this really matters, does it? But it does matter because even if you think it doesn't hurt someone else, it's eroding the very purity, which is so powerful, which is so life transforming, which speaks to the kingdom of God. And I know that's hard. Like nothing I've just said is easy at all. I speak it all at myself as much as I speak it to you. But I do know that that love is always costly. It's, It's always costly. That's what the definition of love is. It's sacrifice. God loved you so much that he died on a cross for you. And you don't hang on the cross for something that you don't love or someone you don't love. Love cost God everything. And the invitation is that we would show some degree of sacrifice, some degree of love in return. It's not just about running from things. It's about running towards the Lord. And then finally... um, Embrace, embrace repentance. Embrace repentance. You know, we're told throughout Scripture, regularly, consistently confess your sins to one another. 
Now, I know that's probably the last thing from fun, if we really are honest. But it is the way to healing. They often say sin won't destroy you, but concealing it definitely could destroy you. And we say, well, what if people really found out who I was? What if they really knew what I really do when I'm behind closed doors? They wouldn't love me, where they wouldn't accept me. I certainly wouldn't be welcoming in any Christian setting. And yet, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. Because it's as we realize that we need God, it's as we realize that we are broken, as we bring that before other people who know us and love us and have our best in heart, it's there that the healing process starts to bring transformation. You know, I'm so passionate about this stuff because I think purity is so powerful, because it's so much bigger than sex, because it's so much more about the inside than the outside. But I believe that if God was to bring transformation to a group of people on the inside and they were to become fully beholden in worship on the creator of the universe, like what could happen would be absolutely astonishing. You know, Dwight Moody says famously, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man or woman fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And you know, that's, that's my prayer too. I'm no, no better than anyone else. I'm messed up and make as many mistakes, if not more than the rest of you. When people say, like, why would you leave behind a business career to become a pastor? Or where would you move across the, the world to go and plant a church? The answer is actually really easy. It's because I too have tasted and I've seen and I've glimpsed the power of the God. And I've seen him heal people and I've seen him transform lives and I've seen him save people out of gutters. I want to see more of it. I want to see more of his goodness. I want to see more of his glory, this side of of dying and the other side. And the invitation is that if I pursue a pure heart, that I will see more of his kingdom. And that's our invitation this morning. So would you stand and we'll pray.